pray for the reading and preaching of God's holy word. Almighty God, through your only Son, you overcame death and opened to us the light of eternity. Enlighten our minds and kindle our hearts with the presence of your Spirit, that we may hear your words of comfort and challenge in the reading of the scriptures, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. A reading from the book of Hebrews, chapter 12, verses 1 to 3, the word of the Lord. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Jackie. gospel reading this morning is from Matthew chapter 25. I'll read verses 14 to 30 as uh, Jesus speaks to us in his word. Again, he says, it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his property to them. To one he gave five talents of money, to another two talents, and to another one talent, each according to to his ability. Then he went on his journey. And the man who had received the five talents went at once and put his money to work and gained five more. And so also the one who had two talents gained two more. And then the man who had received the one talent went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man who had received the five talents brought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five talents, and see, I've gained five more talents. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I'm going to put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. The man with the two talents also came. Master, he said, you entrusted me with two talents, and see, I've gained two more. And his master replied, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I'm going to put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. And then the man who had received just one talent came. Master, he said, I knew that you're a hard man, harvesting where you've not sown and gathering where you've not scattered seed. So I was afraid. And I went out and I hid your talent in the ground. See, here's what belongs to you master replied you wicked lazy servant so you knew that I harvest where I've not sown and gather where I've not scattered seed well then you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers so that when I returned I would have received it back with interest take the talent from him give it to the one who has the ten talents for everyone who has been given more and and he will have uh, for, for everyone who has will be given more, and he will have an abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken from him, 
and throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. The talent was 20 years of wages for a day laborer in the ancient world. That's about $400,000. And I've got a picture of $400,000 just so you know what that looks like. That's just one talent. One guy got five of those. One got two of those. And one just got one. Thank you. And, 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 and the one... And so it's like the master, he's got these three financial advisors and he goes to Wells Fargo advisors and he gives them five talents and he goes to Edward Jones and he gives them two and he goes to Stiffel Nicholas or maybe somebody out of state maybe and gives them just one. So, so one he's investing $2 million, the other gets $800,000 and another gets $400,000 and then the master gets on his yacht with his wife Monique and their, their Rottweiler Marks and he spends two and a half years going around the globe. But he says, I'm coming back and I'm going to settle accounts. It's interesting. Jesus, in verse 31, explains when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all his angels with him, he's going to sit on his throne in heavenly glory and all the nations will be gathered before him to settle accounts. This is Jesus. He's the master. And after two years, he comes back after two and a half years with Monique and Marx. And, and, and he goes to the first firm and they say, we invested your $2 million in like small caps, like a big big caps, all sorts of caps, and, and we got $4 million for you now. And he's like, awesome, that's great. Here's my kid's $50 million trust fund. I want you to have that too. Goes to the second firm, and they say, your $800,000, we invested it in some very rare technology stocks, and it's now $1.6 million. And he says, that's awesome. Here's my dog's $20 million trust fund. I want you to have that too. And he goes to the third firm, and they say, you know, you were such a difficult client. Maybe you're a little scary. And so we just took your money and we stuffed it in a mattress down in the basement. So we're going to send some interns down there to drag your mattress back up. And you can have your $400,000 back. I mean, it's lost about 3% based on inflation these last two and a half years. But it's yours anyway. We weren't going to do anything with it. He says, are you crazy? You could have at least invested it in two-year government bonds. And I would have had $401,000. But instead, you've even lost it. You're fired. And he slams the door. He walks out and he gives the $400,000 back to the first firm. That's what Jesus is talking about here. That's the story as anybody then would have heard it. Jesus is saying, I'm giving you something to invest. And it's not just money, though that's what's symbolized here. But it represents so much more. It represents the salvation that you have been given as a gift of grace by Christ. It represents your relationships. It it represents your empathy. It represents your home, your car, all that you have. He's talking about your entire life as God has gifted it to you. And he's saying, I'm going on a journey, guys. Church, hear me. I'm going on a journey, but I'm going to come back. And I've given you something I want you to invest in the meantime. A few observations here. First, Jesus is saying, I want you to invest the blessings I give you in this new community that I am creating. That's that's what Jesus is here to do. His words are are a direct assault on the Pharisees and the traditional religious establishment of the first century. God had given them his law. He had given his promise of salvation. He had given them sacraments of circumcision and and, and, and gifts like, 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 like Uh, like festivals. He he had given him the temple with its promise of forgiveness based on the shedding of blood. And, And what had they done with that grace? He had commissioned them in the very beginning to be a blessing to all the nations, to, to call all of the Gentiles, all the other peoples of earth to come.
come, shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. You know, come, let us worship the Lord together, inviting them into this family, into this community of grace, this gospel community. He says, I had given you all of this, and what had you done with it? Had you invested it in the community of God? What does that look like in a church context? What it looks like is Jesus gives, let's say, a church of 100 people, a building, some land, some money, uh, some spiritual gifts. He gives them the gospel of salvation. He forgives them. He blesses them with so much. And then he goes away for a few years and he returns. And that 100 people has become 75 people. And he asks, hey, what's going on, guys? He said, well, it's a really sinful world out there. And, and we think you're kind of a stern and scary God. And so we don't want to disobey you. And so, so we've hunkered down and looked inward and made sure that our people were holy. And they understood the Bible. And they understood God. And they read their Bible every day. And they did all the right stuff. And, and, and so here we are. We're 75 people now. And we have a good deal of holiness. Jesus shakes his head, and you can see the wrinkles on his forehead. He says, that's not what I asked for, though. I wanted you to invest this in welcoming others into this kingdom, into this family to grow and build gospel community here. I gave you all of this to invest in them. And you did something else. He gives us something to invest in this new community of Jesus. Uh, One pastor I've, I've read, a guy named Kevin Harney, he tells a story about a little boy in his church. Um, and uh, do you know what Smarties are? We've got a picture of Smarties. Can we get that picture? You know what these are. They're the little round chalk-like tablets that could be medicinal, except their only real ingredients are sugar and food coloring. And uh, this little boy, he, he got, got in that phase of life where he got his first pack of Smarties. And he was opening it up in the church narthex out in the lobby one Sunday morning. And, 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 you know, Pastor Kevin, he just looks at him and he says, Hey, Dustin, uh, you want to give me a Smarty? And this little boy pulls out the very first piece and he gives it to his pastor. And, and you know, Kevin's actually not a big fan of Smarties. He's not a sugar kind of guy. But he saw Dustin and, and he says, Dustin immediately became my Smarties buddy. He, he peeled out a piece, he handed it to me, and from that day on for the next two years... Every time Dustin got a pack of Smarties, he took out the very first one and set it aside for me. Every Sunday, he would track me down and give me the Smarties. Sometimes, you know, it it was a pack of Smarties that his mom gave him on like a Tuesday or a Wednesday. And yet, even then, this little boy Dustin would take out one of the Smarties and stick it down in his pocket. And then on Sunday morning, he'd pull it out, and it's got bits of lint and dirt and all sorts of stuff. It's kind of discolored on one side. He'd, he'd hand it to him, and, he'd, and the pastor would just say, Thanks, I'm going to save this one for later. But he loved these Smarties, and, and he also loved his pastor. And every week before worship, Dustin and Kevin, middle-aged pastor and six-year-old kid, would have this communion out in the church narthex together. They'd talk about life together. They'd pray with each other even. And, and it was something that Dustin was doing because he loved it. Uh, it was a little boy's investment in building gospel community. Uh, one day, Dustin's mom explained to, to, to Kevin uh, that they weren't ordinary big packs of Smarties that he got. They were actually in bulk. We've got a picture of those. Uh, is anybody in here OCD enough to have already counted how many pieces are in each of those rolls? Ten. 
This little boy did not know it, but he was tithing his Smarties every single week. And he didn't know it because he wasn't focused on obeying a biblical rule. He wasn't focused on applying a biblical principle. He was just filled with love for someone. And because he loved this person, he was investing in that community, investing in that relationship because he loved to give. Kevin looks at this little boy as a model. He writes this. He says, I've asked myself many times, how am I doing with my Smarties? What about you? What about me? How are we doing with our Smarties? Jesus has given us something to invest, not just money, but our entire lives. How are you investing it in building and growing this new community of Jesus? Thank you. It's one point. Another point that we're not the owners of the Smarties. We hold Smarties or whatever God gives us in trust. That's part of this parable, uh, that, that, that the master is, is, is the one who ultimately owns everything that he puts at the disposal of his people. It's a mind-altering realization that it is. my condo is a gift of God by grace. He gives me my condominium so that I can invest it in building community, community grounded in the gospel. He gave me my car, uh, at least half of it. I'm still paying for the other half. Uh, but, but half of it, uh, 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 he gives it to me to steward that I would actually use it to build community. Who are you giving a ride to? Who are you picking up groceries for? Whose medications are you getting for them because they're at home and sick? You know, uh, what does it mean to invest my life in this? There's something else here. Could we get that next slide? Toys. Kids. He gave you your toys. Not for yourself, but to invest in building community. Who are you sharing your toys with? Who are you loaning your toys with? Who are you giving your toys to so that they can have toys and know that they too are welcomed into community, that they too are loved? Everything we have is something. My savings account, not very large these days, but it's not mine. I'm just the steward. I think through the amount of money that I will go through in a lifetime. The amount of money that very momentarily will hit my bank account before going to other people. That's good for the toys. Thanks. Uh, and I think if I make $60,000 a year on average over 30 years, that's almost $2 million that's going to pass through my checking account in one lifetime. And I'm asking myself at the end of my life, as I look back, will I have invested that $2 million in things that truly reflect what I value, what I believe in, what I love, will it really reflect where my hope is? How much am I spending on restaurants, on education, on shelter, on personal needs versus the ministry of this welcome of Jesus to build gospel community? Try this one on, parents. Your children belong to God. He has only given them to you for a brief few years on loan so that you can invest them in building the community of Jesus. That means when your teenager wants to go on that scary, crazy mission trip to some scary, crazy part of the world where they could get shot at or blown up, the question you have to face is, is this your child or is this the child of God your Father? As he's, and, 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 and would you rather see your child live a short life of great meeting and self-sacrifice for the sake of the kingdom of Jesus, or would you rather your child live a very long life of selfishness and, 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 and lack of concern for other people. 
Uh, is it your child or is it the Lord's child that he has placed into your home as a steward that you might invest your children in this mission of Jesus, of building the community of Jesus? You know, oh, Try this one on. The affection of your heart. Uh, it's something that God convicted me of in the last year or so. Um, that he has actually given me a great deal of affection for a lot of people. And, and as a single adult, I, I don't have a family physically. And yet I have a lot of, there are a lot of people I care very deeply about, and I'm very loyal to, and I love them very, very deeply. And about a year, year and a half ago, it dawned on me. God showed me, okay, Greg, you have all of this affection for these people. God has put that affection in your heart, and you have never, ever told them any of it. So I started telling people people I care about. I started telling them that I love them. And, and, and some of them, you know, it's like they weren't real sure what to make of that. But I don't think I left people confused and wondering what Greg means by love or what his intentions are. You know, it's not that. It's a, I really love people. And, and God has given you affection in your heart. He has given you love. If you are regenerate, if you have been converted to Jesus, then there is love. He may have given you a whole lot, five talents of love. He may have given you two talents of love. He may have given you one shriveled up grape of love, but that shriveled up grape of love is in your heart. How are you investing it in building the the community of Jesus? Because he's put it there for you. That you might invest it in others. Who are you showing love to? In word and thought and deed. It explains the master's response to the third servant. He wasn't investing it at all. He was living in fear. It's like, you had one job. Invest it in others. First main point, Jesus has given all of us something to invest. Second point, you can't really embrace that calling unless you actually love Jesus. Uh, You know, fear can't motivate. Did you see what happened with the servant, the third servant? Do you know why he did not invest his talent, his life, in the community of Jesus? Did you notice what held him back? He said it. It's right there. He, he, he looked at the master and he said, I was afraid of you. How many of you want to give money to someone that you're afraid of? You know? You're not going to give something away. You're not going to share your toys with somebody that you're afraid of, somebody that you don't have love for. You're not going to invite somebody to your table. You're not going to show somebody love and affection unless you actually have love. Uh, We've got a video here. I thought this was fascinating. Uh, Can we play that video? Watch this.
what motivated these kids to sacrifice their own gift, their dream gift, to give to someone else? Was it fear? Was it because they were afraid of mom? They were afraid of dad? They thought they'd get in trouble? That's never going to motivate anybody to do anything for very long. No. It was love. Because family means everything. Legos are nothing. How can you love Jesus enough to want to give to the community of Jesus? First main point. Jesus has given us something to invest. Second main point. You can't really embrace that unless you love Jesus. And so the last big point to ask then is how is it possible then to actually grow a heart that has affection, love, loyalty, and self-sacrifice to Jesus? Friends, to invest in God's grace, you first have to understand the master's happiness. Did you see in the passage, look at how the last servant viewed the master. He says, uh, you've put me on this performance treadmill. He says, you're an angry ogre. He says, Master God, you are unfair. Of course he was afraid of him if that was his theology. If you think God is an angry ogre shaking a stick at you, you are not going to love God. You are not going to have strength or power to sacrifice for God. You're not going to sacrifice for anything in your life because you're living in fear. We have a picture of what that looks like, by the way. Can we get that one? Uh, Get off my lawn! You know, it's, it's the angry white Jesus. And if that's how you see him, of course you're not going to invest in what he, what he gives you in trust. Of course you're not going to risk anything. That's enough of that, Jesus. He's too white and way too angry. Let's get him off of here. Thanks. He's going to go away. Uh, but think of what Jesus says about God. Jesus again and again and again throughout the gospel says, God is your what? He's your father. He's your dad. Now that in itself can be a little bit scary because of everything else the Bible says about God. The Bible describes God as a ferocious lion. He is the king of the beasts. He is a roaring lion. But you know what else is true even about lions? Lions can be dads. We've got some pictures here. You know, a lion will watch after its little lion pup. It will carry its lion pup wherever it needs to go. It will, you know, allow this lion to to bite him and, and fake pretend that he's in pain just so he'll train him to be a good lion someday because a lion loves its little baby lions. A lion can be... A lion can be a dad too. Do you think that God loves you in Jesus? Do you think God loves you less than that lion loves its little cub? You know, look at the master's nature in this parable that Jesus tells us. What does he tell us here? He tells us that the master, that is God, is fundamentally and basically happy. Did you hear it? It's repeated not once but twice in verse 21. The master, that is God, says, Come and share in your master's happiness. And then again in verse 23, in case you missed it the first time, he says it again. Come and share in your master's happiness. The Bible says that God is fundamentally a joyful being filled and overflowing with happiness. And his only longing and desire is that sinners would flee to Jesus and come in and join in my 
happiness. That's the invitation. That's the call. Every day, he's fundamentally happy. I don't think many Christians really believe that, but it's what the Bible says. In 1 Timothy 1, St. Paul speaks of the gospel of the glory of the blessed God, but that term blessed is the Greek word for happy. The happy God and his gospel of joy. Nehemiah 8, Nehemiah in the Old Testament, the prophet says, the joy of the Lord is your strength. That's not the joy that you have in the Lord is going to strengthen you. It's the Lord's joy for you. His delight, his happiness, the pleasure of God is going to strengthen you as you face adversity and trial and hardship and challenge. John 15, Jesus says to you, his church, these things I've spoken to you so that my joy may be in you so that your joy can be complete. Jesus prays in John 17. He says, Father, now I come to you and these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy in them. Thomas Aquinas said, God is happiness by his essence. He's not happy by acquisition or because he's participating with something. He's happy by his nature, while men are happy merely by participation. Richard Mueller said, God is essentially blessed and happy. The master is fundamentally delightful. He is he's filled with joy and happiness and longs that you would come and join in that. How you view God is going to define how you respond to him and what you're willing to risk. And until your theology changes, you can't really invest in, in Jesus' mission of building this new community grounded in the gospel because the coin still has to drop. You still have to know and experience his love for you, that he's a joyful God overflowing with delight in you, his people. He knows you. Your name is carved in the back of his hand. You are his joy and his delight for which he would sacrifice anything and everything. That changed theology. It has to be experienced. When you picture the face of God looking at you now, what do you see? Do you see the angry white Jesus or the distant, emotionally absent old man in the sky? Or do you see a dad? Do you see the smile lines around his face? Do you see him kicking back his head and laughing in delight? Do you see and experience the love of a God who can make a million squirrels in a single April and then a million bunny rabbits and no two of them are exactly alike? A God who delights in everything he's made and most especially you. Do you see his smile? I mean, what kind of a God would... We got some slides here. What kind of a God would make stuff like that? I mean... That is not an angry ogre. That is a God of beauty with an incredible sense of humor and a very limited palate sometimes. But it's, it's amazing. That's, that's not the work of a monster, but of one who is absolutely beautiful and filled with delight. You know that God likes you, that he's smiling on you. When you get this sense of the radical happiness of God, it, it sets you free. It's no longer drudgery. It's no longer dread. It's a release that you can come and share in the happiness that Jesus, your best friend, has for you. How can God change a greedy, resentful servant into a joyful, risk-taking servant? How can you change your experience of God at that foundational level? That ultimately took something more than you or I could manage. That's where we have to zoom out and recognize the bigger mission of Jesus to rescue us and take each of us, each of you, into that new community of Jesus because ultimately the master was the one who was cast into the outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. He was cast out into the darkness for us. That is what Jesus experienced on the cross 
when he absorbed the full wrath of God, when he took the full power of hell, when he was forsaken, even crying out to God that the Father had forsaken him, when that community of bounded and committed love between Father and Son was rent asunder and the Son was rejected and cast into hell on the cross, he was doing it. He was going to that judgment willingly and deliberately because he knew there was something ahead of him. The author of Hebrews, what Jackie read earlier, says that Jesus did that for the joy that was set before him because having paid our debt in full and freed you forever from any fear of God's judgment, he then rose from the dead and brought you into that family. He gave up everything in order to gain the one thing he wanted even more, which is you. He expelled that you might be brought in. Has that become your story? The story of one who was rescued by Jesus at such a great price. Because, friends, when that sinks in, it shapes you. It changes your priorities. When you begin to think in cruciform ways about the world in which you live, it, it, it's, it's radical grace. I read about the mother of a, a nine-year-old boy named Trevon. She received a phone call in the middle of one afternoon while she was at work. It was the teacher from her son's school. Uh, Mrs. Washington, something unusual happened today in your son's third grade class. Your son did something that, that surprised me so much that I thought I should call you and let you know about it immediately. Those of you who are mothers understand what it's like for a heart to become worried. The teacher continued, Nothing like this has ever happened in all of my years of teaching. This morning I was teaching a lesson on creative writing, and as I always do, I, I began to tell the story of the ant and the grasshopper. We've got that picture. You may have heard the story. Uh, the story, of course, is, is of the ant that you know works all summer long storing up food, and the grasshopper doesn't store up any food. He just kind of lazes around and plays his banjo all summer. And then the winter comes. And when the winter comes... The, the, the grasshopper is desperate because he has no food. And the ant has all this food stored up. And the grasshopper goes to the ant and he says, Oh, Mr. Ant, please, 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 will you share your food with me? I am, I am hungry and I am starving and I'm going to die before this winter is up unless you can give me some of your food. Please, please, Mr. Ant, will you please give me some of your food? And then the teacher tells the class, All right, class, take out a piece of paper and your number two pencil because you're going to finish the story from that point on. And she explained to Mrs. Washington, Mrs. Washington, your son then asked if he could draw a picture instead. And I said he could draw a picture, but first he had to write out the end to the story. And usually, you know, in past years, most students have said that the ant shared his food through the winter and both the ant and the grasshopper lived. Occasionally, a child will write, No, Mr. Grasshopper, you should have worked the summer. Now, you just have, now I just have enough food for myself. And so the ant lives and the grasshopper dies. But Mrs. Washington, your son, Trevon, ended the story in a way different from any other child ever. He wrote this, So the ant gave all of his food to the grasshopper. The grasshopper lived through the winter, but the ant died. And at the bottom of the page, he drew three crosses. That's the love of Jesus. That's the happiness of the 
master who for the joy set before him endures the cross and scorns its shame and sits down at the right hand of the Father and prepares a place there for you. Has that shaped you, friends? Has it sunk in? Has it sunk in so deeply that it defines you and shapes even how you think a children's story ought to end? Thank you. At the age of five, John Gilbert, and we've got his photo here as well, if we could get that one. At the age of five, John Gilbert was diagnosed with a disease called Duchenne's muscular dystrophy. It's a genetic, progressive, debilitating disease. And every year, this little boy lost something that was valuable, lost something that you or I would consider essential for being human. One year, he lost his ability to run, and so he could could, could still throw a ball, but he couldn't run the bases. And another year, he lost his ability to stand up, and he ended up in a wheelchair at the side, but he could still cheer on until one year he lost his voice, and he couldn't even cheer. It was hard for him. He suffered a lot more than we can imagine during those years because at school, groups of students would humiliate him because of his condition. They'd tease him because of his wheelchair. They'd tease him because of his trained dog. You see him there, who he had to have with him at all times. A bully used to torture John in the lunchroom when there were no teachers supervising, and no one ever, ever stood up for him. He was teased. He was mocked. People threw stuff at him. They called him names. Once John was invited to an NBA fundraising auction, the National Basketball Association, and when it began, one item in particular caught this boy's eye. It was a basketball that was signed by every player of the Sacramento Kings, which was his favorite team. And John so desperately wanted that basketball. And when it came up for bid, he felt his hand raise up a little bit in the air, but you know, he didn't understand. They had no funds to participate, so his mom pulled his arm down and had him sit there quietly throughout. And they watched the bidding on this basketball, and the bidding started to go up. $100, $150, $250, $500, $750, $1,000, $1,500. One gentleman outbid another, and then a man topped that, and the bids kept going up, and they kept going up way more than anyone could ever have imagined. Someone was going to pay an exorbitant price for this basketball, and the price rose to an astounding amount compared to the real value of the ball, and especially compared to the other items at auction. And finally, a man made a final bid that was so high, it was astronomical, that no one else in the room could possibly match it. He had won the prize. He had paid a fortune to gain one precious signed basketball. The man walked to the front, and he claimed the basketball. You can almost feel the tension in the air as the man signs off on the paperwork and commits a wealth, a small fortune toward this one magical basketball. And then he turns around to face the crowd, and you can feel the hush come over the room. And the gentleman, though, he does not go back to his seat. Instead, the man walks across the room and gently placed the basketball into the thin, small hands of the little boy who had tried in vain to place the very first bid. The man put that ball into hands that would never be able to dribble a ball down a court, that would never be able to throw it to a teammate, that would never fire it from the foul line, but those hands would cherish that ball as long as they lived. John later wrote, 
It took me a moment to realize what the man had done. I remember hearing gasps all around the room and then thunderous applause and then weeping eyes everywhere. And to this day, I'm still amazed. He asked this. He says, have you ever been given a gift that you could have never gotten for yourself? Has anyone ever sacrificed a huge amount for you without getting anything in return except the joy of having done that? Friends, that's what Jesus did for you. He gave you a gift that you could never have gotten for yourself. In this life, yes, people will bully you and humiliate you and throw things at you and call you names because you, like they, are broken. But there was one man who had all the wealth of heaven and earth, and he outbid every other bidder in order to gain your soul. And he paid an exorbitant price for it. He did it for the joy set before him, for that joy enduring the cross and scorning its shame. And when he had paid for that great gift, he turned to you, frail and damaged in the wheelchair that only you can see. And he placed that gift, that precious gift, into your lap. And what he gave you, friends, was his heart. And he did it because he treasures you, because he had unending happiness, and he wanted you to come and join in that happiness so that you would then invest all of that blessing in the new community of Jesus, in building that community, a gospel community founded on the cross. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, Savior, we give you thanks because you treasured us, because you valued us so highly that you gave up your very life on the cross that we might come. You driven out that we might come in. And so we consecrate to you the elements on this table, Lord, that you would preach the gospel to us who need it most. For we are all bruised and broken, damaged by the fall, but you, Lord, have loved us and called us into a community of grace. It's in your name that we pray, Lord.